Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another episode, episode number 13 of The King's Table. I am Ashish Nathu. I am joined with my best of best friends, Mooch, coming in from Austin, Maddie Atchison, and Mike Ayala. Good to see you guys. Um, happy Diwali, happy Halloween, happy Dia de Muertes. It is uh, a, a season of lots of celebrations and things. And right before we were recording, Mooch, I don't know what is in the air, but it is definitely a rough season, isn't it? Yeah, there's so much wild news this it's week. Just but wild yeah, and things. it's November. Like November should just stress everybody out, right? It's like, wait, Thanksgiving, then Christmas, then the end of the year and goals. Combine that with Israel and real estate markets and tension. Yeah, it's a season. It's been a weird week. This well, this is I'm honestly everyone... my favorite season of the year. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Well, see, season in I'm, terms of I, holidays I'm, and fun, but I'm loving this season right now. You're always I vibing. It's as good as you ma- as you want to make it, right? I mean, it's oh, what, yeah, whatever man. narrative and story you're tapping into right now. That's truth, man. I'll, truth. So I'll be eating as much anyways. food as I can in December again, and then I'll do another five day fast between. Last year, I did a five day fast between Christmas and New Year's, and I went from 17 percent body fat to t- to like 13. And then 30 days later, I was down to 10%. So like within like a 45-day period, I was able to go from 17% to 10. So now I'm hoping just to eat like crazy. And I'm still at 10 right now. I'm going to eat it. like crazy during December, try to slightly bulk up and then do the same thing again. I'm, I'm locked in right now on um, in our accountability yeah. group. We're doing what we're calling a 80-10. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's basically everybody's kind of, you, you come up with your own health and it's kind of like the 75 hard, but you come up with your own commitment of what those deliverables are every day. And you have to do all of those, um, over the next 90 days, do all of those at least 80 times and you get 10 mulligans. So you get 10 cheat days. I'm feeling phenomenal right now. You're with looking that, cut, bro. You are looking with that cut. momentum. And it, and I think what it what it goes back into as well why why I love doing these types of challenges at the end of the year is because I often hear what you just said Ashish which is like oh the holidays are chaotic oh it's da 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 and I'm like oh this is my favorite time of year because this is when most people either take their foot off the gas pedal or yeah. feel stretched out or have all of these things that are going on that pull them out of productivity and I'm like this is where this, this is, is where sh- the elite performers make up the ground that most people lose. And then some. So that that's my mindset going into you know yeah. these next few months is this is where the peak performers really take some market share when everybody else is getting distracted with the holidays and the eating and uh, whatever it is that's filling your mind or your body. This is where this is where I get an edge. Well, speaking of peak performers, a few weeks ago we actually had Vivek Ramaswamy on the podcast. If you're listening now and you haven't had a chance to go back and see it on YouTube or listen to it on any of our podcasts. We launched it on all of our podcasts. What a great episode. I'd love to just quickly go through that and see what has the feedback been? Um, We're still trying to get, I know Mooch has reached out to a couple other candidates. Uh, So if anyone has any relationships with 
you know, campaign managers or fundraising managers, et cetera, on any of these major campaigns, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, RFK, we really would love to invite those people to have a similar conversation. But um, let's just go around the table. Any feedback? How How's your, um, what's the feedback been from your listener base? Mooch, you want to start? I don't know if we're saying Vivek right. I know that's a couple yeah, we things are. that I'm I got. I'm Indian. I know how to say the- Vivek. I was on the phone with his campaign, like his fundraising manager, and she corrected me. And she said, it's Vivek like cake. I'm like, no, it's not. The only reason why he says that way is because it's easier for a certain type of person to say that because you can relate it. But his his name is Vivek. That's how you say his name, Vivek. That's so interesting. On the all in, they just they still say Vivek every day. They they talk about him a lot. And they keep so. like, and so I was like, are we saying it wrong? And then I have all these people messaging me saying you were saying it wrong. You know, it was a lot of fun as the interview. I guess my only recap is man on my YouTube page, I'm still getting lots of comments, lots yeah. of people chiming in 90% really favorable. I think in general, there's um, some people that are like favorable and believers like, Hey, he can make it. There's some people that are favorable and disappointed saying he'll never have a shot, but I wish we had politicians like this. And I think that's just kind of interesting. I was really hoping to see as a result of him talking to the four of us, his uh, poll rating jumping through the roof uh, because I figured I had that much power in the world, Um, (laughs) but his poll rating hasn't changed yet. So I'm a little disappointed with our listener base. You guys didn't put in any money. You didn't respond to the polls. You You weren't changed people. Like we were, because I didn't know him before the deal, before a week before. I was very impressed by the interview. And yeah, I think politics is an interesting thing. It's an interesting battle um, that people have to fight. And I thought it was also like like cool again that he was kind of at this point where he's like, hey, what part of the problem is I got to ask for money right now because yeah. this other stuff is happening. So I keep, ho- I keep hoping the polls might um, change a little bit and start jumping. There was also a bunch of comments that said, I don't believe these polls and I don't believe these polls because, you know, they don't like him. The same sort of Trump-esque type stuff that people thought. And we haven't really seen polls that work the last, you know, several years. So maybe the polls don't matter or maybe the polls are to get people to come off and on. I remember Trump's first election with Hillary. The polls were off by just a landslide. And then even last year, even last time. You know, the where Biden won, uh, the polls were still that he was going to win like, you know, 80 to 20 and Trump still won some states that they weren't expecting him to. So so I guess the other side of that is, I guess maybe I don't trust polls or I believe with those people. That's my quick summary. It was, it was a, lot, yeah. a lot of fun. And I've been listening to the comments. and I love seeing how many conversations are happening on my YouTube page with it. Yeah. Maddie. I think overall, the the feedback that I got was that people people like what he has to say. I don't think anybody believes that he's got a chance. Yeah. But I think in terms of people liking his policy and his stance, and I think one of the things that resonated with me that I think resonates with other people from what I've heard in terms of feedback is he does have that level of polish and diplomacy that people can point to as a good role model or you know, person to have at the helm that we just haven't had in many years, really since Obama, right? Like whether you, whatever you feel about Obama's policy, he was, he was very relatable and he was very diplomatic and he was very good at how he delivered things. And whether you agreed with him or not, he still found a way to kind of bring you in and make you feel included. 
Um, whereas Trump obviously doesn't have that level of polish, right? But but Vivek does, but with Trump-esque policies, which I think a lot of people like right now, which is pro-America policies. So um, overall, I thought there was a ton of great feedback from the episode. And it sounds like from all of our podcasts and all of our audiences, you know, people really enjoy hearing those different perspectives, especially because, you know, like what he said, you know, politics, you may not like them, but they like you. And I think now more than ever, people are waking up to that. Hmm. Do you think it was Mikey? strange that Obama used to be a smoker? You just know that. There's a lot of strange stuff about Obama. The, like, even though, like, he, because there was so much where they're like American Dream, but everyone's other there was clips of him smoking. And I was kind of like, hey, as the president, aren't you supposed to, like, I know that, like, you're not supposed to judge, but at the same time, like, man, the, he should have definitely done that in secret. The Marlboro man. The Marlboro, um, yeah. He was the official. You know, it's interesting. I had some one-on-one conversations with some people that listened to it and had never really heard from him, like people that probably should have. And so, like, I think a lot of people aren't paying attention. Yeah. That's one thing that I'm kind of, like, gathering from this because I had a lot of feedback from people that are, you know, pretty successful and business owners and just a few different conversations where they're like, I hadn't really even heard from the guy. And it makes me just kind of think, I mean, obviously feedback from a few people isn't, but I'm just wondering how many people aren't paying attention. If the conversation that I had with a few of these guys where they're like, I've just never even heard anything from this guy. I'm like, man, people, I'm just wondering how many people are even checked out of the whole primary process. And, and that being said, I think, you know, back to Maddie's point, a lot of people just don't think that, that he has a, a chance. And, you know, I mean, even when he's on the podcast talking about money and, I mean, if people at this stage don't think he has a chance, then, you know, who's going to get behind him with money? And if that's the, you know, big thing that he's battling, I, I think that's his uphill battle. And then the other thing that um, I got some feedback on, too, was I wish he could debate as well as he communicates on your podcast. Mm. And I was like, that's a really interesting point. I, I didn't yeah, watch I the debates, so I I didn't have any context around that, but. That, that was some of the feedback that I got. Like if he could only debate as well as he communicates or articulates, you know, when he's on his talking points. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've been following him like Maddie. We've been talking about him for months and look at Mooch, right? Mooch maybe heard us talk about it, but as influential and as in the know as Mooch is, you just started consuming or observing him and really learning about him a few days before we started recording. So I think yeah. that nowadays in, in politics, it really, popularity does really matter. And the Trump mm-hmm. brand is so strong. It's so, it's so widespread, just not even in the US, but globally that, you know, how many people, what percentage of people that are going to go out and vote have never even seen his name before. And I think that is a, a challenge. I mean, he's trying I, to play the social media game and the ground game and show up on all kinds of places, which I think is the only shot you have being a nobody like as of March, he was a nobody. Yeah. So I think his overall stock goes up though after this campaign. For sure. I don't I don't think he has a chance, but I think in the grand scheme of his brand, his if he chooses to stay on this path political career, his stock goes way up from this campaign. For and sure. I think depending on who gets in Oval Office and what opportunities present themselves, you know, in that administration, I think he's a leading candidate for a lot of opportunities. Yeah, for sure. 
that's the other conversation that come up a lot too, is that he would be a great number two, which I know we kind of talked about after the podcast, but again, depending on who that candidate is like, and I don't know if I'd want to blow my wad on being a number two in, in, uh, in certain campaigns. Yeah. So I, I think it's going to be interesting to see, but that was a lot of feedback that I got too. I don't think he has a chance, but he'd be a great vice president. I was like, that's really interesting. I don't, you know, to your point, mm-hmm. Maddie, on stock and his future and, and all of that, I think he has to be really selective on deciding who he becomes a number two for. Agreed. Something that's interesting is you know, back in like, I'm, I mean, I'm I'm super old listeners, back in 2000, political campaigns started in February or March of that year, right? And like 2004, I remember political campaigns starting in like January and thinking, oh my God, the election's 11 months away and we're already talking about this. And what's crazy is like this started a year ago. So campaigns are now starting two years before the next election. And that's ludicrous. And I think that also kind of changes the game. And who knows with polls at the same time, it's like anybody's game because it used to be like, when you think of John Kerry, like, when he like became the nomination for the Democrats, like he was kind of an unknown, unheard of guy until maybe, you know, nine months before the election. like, like not in the same, like unknown to me, unknown to lots of people. Yeah. And he gets that just quick polls on morning consult says Donald Trump, 61%, Ron DeSantis, 13. And now Nikki Haley and Vivek Vivek. However, we're supposed to say his name both at 7%. So he was behind Nikki Haley. I think it'd be cool to interview Nikki Haley, we saw, we shared a quick clip, um, with us and her just beating up on a CNN reporter. And I just had to watch, I watched it like five times, just laughing my ass off. So, um, anyway, there's still a long ways to go. So at the same time, like, yes, could somebody Mm -hmm. unseat Trump as the front runner? I, I doubt it. Could somebody unseat DeSantis? Could, could Nikki or, or Vivek? I also like DeSantis. So could Nikki or Vivek overcome his poll numbers? Yeah. I think that I think that one of them could become the secondary position and who knows about, you know, the future. So cool stuff. I, I don't remember where I read this, but I think that it's like two billion dollars you need to be elected president. So it's really hard if you don't have the popularity and you're not willing to get the big super PAC super money pack. like Vivek was talking about, like those big hundred, two hundred million dollar donations and things like that. You're not running ads like uh, how, that's it's a different not world. in your favor. Yeah, just because you're a different campaign trail nowadays. Yeah, exactly. So before we digress off of politics, did anybody see Newsom, Gavin Newsom, out in China steamrolling little Chinese kids on a basketball court? And oh no! Tell us about that. What happened? Pictures with the Great Wall of China, which ironically is right armed with guards and protecting their sovereign country, and yet we can't even protect the southern border of California and. It was, uh, there's just so many weird things going on with Gavin Newsom. And I still am of the stance that they're going to parachute him in at some point, whether it's really opportunistic for 2024 and he has to, but I think for sure in 2028, but dude, he scares the hell out of me seeing how corrupt and his cronyism and he's the ultimate democratic elite, you know, deep state puppet. Uh, and has destroyed San Fran with his policy. You look at California as a whole and economically and what happened during COVID response and all the businesses and just so many, he, he scares me more than anybody in politics right now. Yeah. Bloomberg actually had a, a 
the their article this morning was a picture with him and Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. He had a meeting with the president. I'm like, what the? Yeah. What's the meme group that does fake news? Bumble uh, or Bumblebee or whatever. Something like that. The Babylon Bee. Babylon, Babylon Bee. Bee. There you go. I loved the freaking images of Gavin over there and saying, you know, trying to learn more communist skills from China to bring back to California. Um, <laughs> I think on a serious note, I think there is a better than 50% chance that Newsom comes in and is the Democratic nominee for, for 2024. Yeah, but I, for, for the next election. I think they're just timing it very yeah. carefully because they don't want to have him be the front runner and then get taken down. That's really hurt DeSantis being so early because we started talking a few years ago. I think Gavin absolutely wants to be president. I think they will absolutely bring him in and he's got a good shot at the nominee when, um, cause right now it's still like facing off Biden against Trump. We lose some momentum. I would not be surprised if now they bring in Newsom and then all the Democrats come back over and go like, Oh, like we still don't like Trump. So Trump's better than Biden, but we like, you know, well, it's still very early. We've said this before. We still have 12 months. These guys are, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. There's lots of decisions to be made. It's anyone's game. Anybody's it's game. anyone's game. There's lots of Get your fun news from the battle so, on B. What I love about Vivek is we set the bar pretty high. I know that, you know, Mikey and I talked uh, on an Instagram live a few weeks ago about like people were reaching out to both of us. Like, how the hell did you guys get Vivek? Like, I've been trying to get Vivek for a while and no one's responding. And by the way, Vivek's campaign is like super easy to work with. Yeah. So yeah. we are excited, hopefully bringing the next level of people on the podcast that we can have deep quality, good conversations and bring value to people. Let's kind of pivot. I think we were sending out an article and uh, this is really Mooch's uh, expertise here. And maybe you can share some insight here, what's going on, Mooch. But in the state of Missouri, a Missouri jury on Tuesday found the National Association of Realtors, uh, an industry group that found the residential brokers were liable for $1.8 billion in damages from determining that they were conspiring to keep commissions on home sales artificially high. Um, you've had a lot of posts on this, Mooch, this week. Tell us what this means. Tell us what's happening. I mean, you're talking about some really big companies, Brookshire Hathaway, some of the largest uh, brokerage firms, Kelly Williams is in, Keller Williams is in here. So what's going on? How did this happen? What does this mean? Um, and we'll go around the table. Yeah, it was fresh news yesterday. I mean, it's been news going for a while. So a year ago, maybe longer is when this first came out. So class action lawsuit starts in the state of Missouri. They originally had five or six defendants. Two or three of the defendants actually settled and paid money to get out of this thing, you know, four or five months ago. And so they didn't want to be part of the finale. And so at the end, Keller Williams was one of the defendants, the along with uh, RE Max, Home Services of America. Um, you know, and so the part, the, the lawsuit says essentially these companies are colluding unfair Mm. practices. They are keeping people out of the market. They are not allowing fair free trade and they are, um, by doing the collusion, they're artificially inflating sales prices. I remember getting into this legal argument like six or nine months ago with Pat Hyben and we're, and we're reviewing it kind of in detail. And we're like, we actually think this argument is valid. This legal argument is valid. So what's it, what are some of the arguments they said in there? Some of the arguments they said is, Hey, MLS, you have to be a member to be a part of MLS, which means it's not a free trade or a free market. Someone could be a real estate agent legally able to do it, but if they don't have MLS access, they're not able to actually offer, see the buyer agent commissions. And so you are making it 
kind of more exclusive than it should be. So that's part of um, the like the conspiracy type stuff of like not letting people in uh, monopoly, you know, monopolistic power. So one of the arguments was against the MLS and the use of MLS to promote that. And then the other was saying not all buyers realize that their buyer's agents are getting paid by the seller. And in theory, the seller would be willing to sell for less if someone didn't have a buyer's agent. Now, I as a seller, that's actually a legitimate time. So when we would get offers for people, there would be times when there are multiple offers, people would say, hey, and I'm not bringing a buyer's agent, so you don't have to pay my buyer, you don't have to pay a commission, I want a 3% discount. And we would say, cool. And we would have our agent, our listing agent, represent both sides and discount it. So that's a valid argument too. There's a lot more to it. You know, I think one of the mistakes that I've heard so far is Gary Keller, who is a brilliant man. He is a, you know, he's a owner of Keller Williams, founder of Keller Williams, on the forefront of so many different things. Uh, what I heard in a lot of different blog posts is the jury didn't like him. He's, you know, a little too smart, a little too polished, a little too wealthy. And uh, the fact that he took the stand on it as a defendant, you know, the he does really, really great when he's telling realtors how to coach. Uh, two and a half hours later, uh, jury awards $1.8 billion in that class action suit, which comes out to like five or $6,000 uh, per plaintiff in that. It reminds me of 2007 when the housing market started to turn and lawyers started knocking on the doors in our home building developments and saying, hey, join this class action suit. You're going to get a check for $5,000. Times are tougher. People are struggling with rents. And they just kind of say like, okay, $5,000. That sounds good. I'll sign on. And they get a $5,000 check. And so the, uh, when times are tough, there's more lawsuits like this. The other side of like, what does it mean? Right? So the, I posted one yesterday. Let me see if I can find my quote really quick, but it talks about, so the worst case possible scenario with this is actually kind of a big deal. I think it's probably has a pretty decent chance at happening. So from the article in the worst case scenario for the defendants, the judge could ban cooperative compensation rule nationally on the multiple listing services, which would prevent listing agents and home sellers from, from predetermining buyer agent commission rates. Listing agents would also be prohibited from sharing commissions with buyer agents and buyer agent commission rates would never be published in MLS again. Um, hmm. And so the a listing agent could no longer offer compensation to a buyer agent, could no longer offer to share as part of the deal because they think that's what artificially increases prices. Um, Right after this came out, two hours later, same the same attorneys went and filed lawsuits against the remaining big brokerages in Missouri. So now they went after Compass and the other ones today that weren't a part of it. So now they're going to name everybody. And what's going to happen over the next year is they're going to go state to state, suing yep. everybody, getting the same settlements. Huge money grab. Uh, it will be, I don't know. So the total award in Missouri probably be $4 billion when they get done with everybody. Multiply Jesus. that by 50 states. Missouri is not a big state, but what mm -hmm. is 4 billion times 50? Are you at 2 trillion or 200 billion? Like it's a big number um, that like, I don't know who's going to be able to actually pay it. I don't think any, so uh, it'll change the real estate industry. Uh, people have commented back saying it's not going to affect us. People have commented back saying, well, there's going to be lots of um, the appeals and it's not going to hold up. Uh, <laughs> I tell you what, my prediction, it will absolutely hold up legally. Uh, we've been saying it for years, though, it was bound to happen. But the le this legal argument, you have to hand it to the attorneys because the, the legal ar argument was brilliant and it stood up. But I said, to give hope to people, I've got all these agents also because 
my real estate rockstars listeners, you guys are here. You're like, what does this mean? We're going to do a lot of stuff about how to pivot and what this really means. But no commercial real estate has been like this for a long time. It's very mm. common in commercial real estate for the com- for the seller to say, hey, I'm going to give you listing agent 2% to sell this deal. And if a buyer came to the deal and most of the time they sold it off market, they didn't put it on an MLS, they'd go sell it off market. And then those buyers would have to pay their own agent's commission. If they wanted to have a buyer representation, they had to pay for it. It's really, really common. Um, I think it's probably going to be the end of MLS. So why would you put a house on MLS if there's no reason for a buyer's agent to have it? So they're going to go straight to Zillow, straight to Redfin. I'm surprised that Zillow's stock dropped. I figured Zillow stock would have increased on this because it increases the value of Zillow. It devalues the reason for anyone to join a local association of realtors, for anyone, for anyone to join, um, MLS uh, in the long term. But I think, I mean, commercial has been like that for a long time. There will be pivots and ways around it. Um, but on the low end, where buyers' agents have had to struggle and prove value for a while, it's really common too for buyers to say, like, hey, I found this house. Why don't you give me half your commission? Right? Like people's commissions have been, so they're going to have a tough time, you know, proving value. So, I think it's a really interesting court case. Um, I think it just, uh, it's an example of when times are tough. Also what happens, it gets amplified because now everybody's going to sign on to the class action that did a deal with any of the big people. Um, and I, I also think that one reason why the judge, my last prediction, and I'd love to hear your guys' stuff. One reason why I think the judge might actually do the outlaw note right now where he says, Hey, you know, you can no, no, no longer put pay buyer's agents commission. Listing agents can no longer do this. When there's an appeal, there'll be a stay period where it'll become invalid for a little bit. But I think the big brokerages will pr- probably fall into line to not add to it. But one of the reasons a judge could put in a, a national ruling on it now is to prevent the $2 trillion lawsuit. It's to prevent people from going state to state to try to prove it out state by state legally. So I think people are like, there's no way the appeals court's going to hold this up because it's going to change the industry. I think the appeals court might hold it up just to prevent these lawsuits from happening everywhere else and have the damage be in the two trillion instead at a time when brokerages are dying. So um, anyway, I talked way too long about it. I think it's super, super fascinating. I've been studying it like crazy and it will absolutely change real estate forever, but it doesn't mean real estate's gone. It doesn't mean agents are gone. Like the, it's been like this in Australia for a while and it's been like this in commercial real estate for a while. Interesting. I, I was going to ask you, Mooch, because I know you posted some stuff, right? Like EXP stock dropped. What What is the impact this is going to have, in your opinion, on brokerages themselves and kind of the shakeup of that entire model, the value there? Obviously, there's a significant portion of you know licensees that really only do one side of the transaction, right? On the buy side. So that's obviously going to shake up the brokerage model as a whole. That's going to shake up the industry as a whole. And then obviously, how does that trickle into the valuation or the changing values of home markets? If anything, is that put more money in the seller's pocket or are values going to slip because of that and find a new settling in values based on that not being an expense in you know the the cost of sale right there's a lot of trickle down effects here that I'm just curious on your outlook on those yeah great questions man the yeah, exp stocks only down 10% zillow's down like 14% i expected exp to drop like crazy because they're a buyer agent commission model right. i think it's going to catch up to exp no but maybe some of it was priced in because 
in August, EXP was worth 25 bucks a share and today it's at 13. So we're down 50% over four months. So maybe this started to get priced in already as they started to mm -hmm. see that this thing had legs. I think Compass has been hurting before that, but like Compass just got named. Yeah, Compass stock is getting crushed, but they're actually performing better in the last four months than EXP is. So, uh, but Compass is down a lot from their peak. If you use just single house examples, I think it will, in the short term, lower some prices to get some deals done. At a, but at a time when rates are high and we don't really know what it is, I just think it's going to be very common for people like, again, when someone came to me and said, hey, I don't have a buyer's agent, could you give me a 3% discount? We said yes every time. And so I do think there's a little bit of a trickle down with that. I think it changes the brokerage model. And I think there's some agents out there that have been waiting for an excuse to quit because mm. it's hard right now. And I think that will push some people into it. I think overall, the bigger pivots are going to be essentially just changing the script and changing the outreach. I mean, outreach, so much of our software that we, that we're like been coaching people with is like helping people to find sellers that don't even know they need to sell yet. It's like, so I think there's just going to be way more like using skills that like wholesalers and investors were using to go find people like that. I think agents are going to have to start doing that. It's going to be a fight for the listing and it's going to be, you know, 10 years ago, anyone would have said, hey, in 10 years, the real estate commissions are going to be a lot smaller. They're going to be 1% instead of five because technology is going to replace it. And technology has replaced it, but the commissions haven't dropped down. Uh, I think it was inevitable. So I think commissions are actually going to get lowered down to like 1% to 2% overall. Agreed. Like for listing mm -hmm. people to do both sides because now that everyone is competing to be a listing agent, they will also negotiate against each other. So. I think it'll just lower commissions overall. I think it'll probably help some pricing stuff. Some people said it's going to lead to a lot of lawsuits because of no buyer representation on stuff. I don't know. I mean, I think agents can do fine when they represent both sides. It takes a more skilled agent and better disclosures, and people are going to have to be smart when they're doing it. I don't think extra don't, lawsuits is going to be an outcome. I don't. If anything, it's going to and it's going to force innovation to bulletproof that process and streamline that mm -hmm. process even better for a better customer experience. That's going to eliminate a lot of the human error and negligence that happens in the real estate industry, you know, the ENO side of things. And being that it's going to be on one side leading that charge, there's going to be a major consolidation of agents yeah. for sure. Right. Like how I'm many talking people just for a second, I just want to interrupt you for a second. I want to hear the rest of it, but just think about that for a second, that the experience might actually be better with right. one agent in the transaction. Yeah, when there are agents so. fighting each other. The best agents are going to be like, hey, this is a team effort. You're the buyer. You're the seller. Let's work together. Like in theory, it could be a better experience. But sorry, keep going. As, like, as you said that, I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, and well, that, that will go back to my last soapbox on brokers and, and agents, right? Is there's so many of them that really don't deserve to be in the deal. And there are so many of them that are are great. So I think by, you know, the consolidation um, naturally that's going to happen through this process. It's going to one, allow the great ones to thrive and shine more. So if you're one of those people and you're listening in, there's massive opportunity that I think is going to come through this process, right? You're going to have to innovate your scripts and your skills and your outreach and all that kind of stuff. Right. But I also think it's going to eliminate and get rid of a lot of people that just create more havoc and chaos and unnecessary people in transactions that really hamper and bring down the experience 
um, and create a bad name and stigma for the real estate industry. So I, that's my stance on on that side of things. But I do think that there's definitely going to have to be some innovation and there's massive opportunity in that, by the way, for people that are understanding and looking at it through the lens of now, which it will be played out through to go and find new ways of innovating those processes, whether it's through software systems, right. And, and policy that I think overall is going to actually be a net benefit, net positive to the industry as a whole. And most importantly to the customer as a whole. Yeah. I think it, it, I think it, it changes the business, but I think it will be a net positive. I think it'll be a net positive too. And and Aaron, I'm going to make a couple of statements and then I have some more questions, I think more than anything, but you know, Maddie, you were just talking about eliminating, you know, some of the people that maybe don't belong in the industry or whatever, but I was chatting with Kara about this and it's interesting too, because like the pipeline to knowledge and education and experience in the real estate industry is really a lot of times on the buyer's agent side, right? Like you, you're going to go, you're going to go represent buyers in my, so I'm just wondering too, what it does long-term. And again, I think it's a positive thing. Cause I, I think, I think just the fact that, you know, somebody new wanting to get into real estate that thinks that they're going to make a million dollars a year in three years, and it's going to be simple. Those people are going to run like wildfire because it's, you know, they, they're not going to find some seller's agent. That's like, Hey, be my buyer's agent. Or, you know, I, I think, I think a lot of that's going to go away. And I think the barrier to entry is going to be more challenging, which just means that the good people in the industry are going to get even better. And I actually think that this has probably been needed for a long time, but you know, Aaron, I love that you brought this up, but I've bought 35 mobile home parks over the years, actually 36. And I've never, I've never had a buyer's agent. It's always been us kind of representing ourselves with an attorney. And these are bigger transactions, obviously, but just in that mindset, and I'll say this and then kind of maybe toss it back as a question. In that realm and that mindset, so many times I've been at the table with the seller's agent, with the sellers, and we're having an open conversation about challenges in the deal and things that we didn't see. And you know, I think so many times when in the real estate, in a single family transaction, when I'm talking to my buyer's agent, who's talking to the seller's agent, who's talking to the seller, and it takes all this time to get back. Like, I mean, we've said this, you know, as investors for years, if I could just get to the seller, if I could just get to the seller, I know we could get a deal done. But so many times, the layers and layers and layers of people trying to, I know they're trying to do what's in the best interest of everybody's client. But the reality at the end of the day, what's in the best interest of a client on both sides is to get a freaking deal done. And it's so much easier, you know, again, manufactured housing deals are much more complicated and we've never had a buyer's agent. And so many times the seller's agent is even communicating with us directly, sometimes without their seller even. There's obviously disclosures and everything that, you know, we all sign. But I think there's a way around this. And so I guess my question would be, um, at the end of the day, maybe maybe a two or three part question. So first off, when I think about this, just like I said, I had attorneys on my transactions there might be a lot of opportunities here for people to represent buyers just to review, you know, documents and just give me advice, not maybe not for a 2% commission or 3% commission, but like a flat fee, even in the mobile home park industry in Nevada, for instance, you have to have a special license in the state of Nevada to sell a manufactured home. Well, so many of us in the industry don't want to go get that special license. So we found a brokerage company that just, does a transaction for like 370 bucks. They'll just do the legal work. 
and they represent us as the seller. And so I just wonder if there's opportunity in this realm um, for companies to just represent buyers on the legal side or, you know, just have an advice pipeline. Cause that's the thing that I would be concerned with is like all these buyers not having any kind of representation. I don't know that it's going to drive prices down. I don't know that it's going to, I mean, obviously commissions are going to come down because people don't want to pay commissions anyway. And if they're like, Hey, I'm not paying 6% when you're not representing me at all, or you're just representing me on the half. So I'm just wondering what you think are the opportunities coming out of this. I want to add to that, Mooch, and maybe you, maybe Maddie has an opinion about this also. I want to just add to Mike's question is I think what, you know, who owns MLS? I'd like to ask that question. Who actually owns MLS? When we talk about this, who's, who's in the best interest to keep these situations the way they are, right? So commissions are high, five, six, seven percent. Often, you know, you you explained the de- details pretty nicely. But today, I'm really fascinated with the amount of information, Zillow, um, you know, all these websites that buyers and sellers can go get so much information that you couldn't get 10 years ago. On the commercial side, you got 10X, you got Crexy, you got LoopNet. You have so much information with blockchain, with like all these systems. Why is it that we still need humans to interact and and require that much? I'm just surprised that based on where we are today, that there just hasn't been significant margin compression in the brokerage market. Um this and is so one maybe step this in that is, direction. Yeah, this is this is like the one big market change shift, you know, class action lawsuit that's going to cause that. Maybe it happens, maybe it doesn't. But like I remember when cars.com came out, right? Changed mm-hmm. the car industry forever. Like information for somebody to buy and sell a car. I'm still surprised that we can't buy and sell a car on blockchain. Like, you know, so why is it that it takes that much work, that much cost to buy and sell a single family home that's a thousand square feet or two thousand square feet, less than a million dollars? Like, my, my, why can't we get that sophisticated? So, yeah, turn it back to I, the team. I, I want to hear Aaron's response on this, but I want to kind of add to that too, which is which is going back to Mike's point. There's a certain level of acumen and confidence that comes with being on a certain side of a transaction, whether you're, you know, an investor and you're buying something, right? And you've got a certain amount of team members that you know are going to be necessary to doing that, but really you're the one leading it versus there's been this mentality in the single family real estate industry for so long that you, that people don't have this level of acumen around buying and selling homes, and there's a, a lack of confidence and and clarity around what it takes to navigate that process. Same mm-hmm. thing when I think about going through a blockchain transaction. Of there's a certain level of acumen and confidence and clarity around what actually goes into simply and successfully accomplishing whatever that goal is. So I think that with this domino falling, where the innovation and where the opportunity is going to come is by creating simplicity and creating clarity around what this process actually does entail, who and or what platforms or systems or resources are actually necessary to accomplish that outcome. And then it's going to be an educational process, right? For the consumer around how you engage in that process to achieve that outcome. 
cars.com took a little time. Now mm-hmm. it's like clockwork. Everybody can wrap their head around it very simply. And I do this, this, and this, and I can make that, you know, happen for me very easily. I think that is going to happen in the real estate industry and be accelerated and expedited through this major domino falling. And we'll see what, you know, other trees fall behind it. But I think that's also the same thing crypto is struggling with or blockchain is struggling with, right? That again, over time as education um, gets absorbed by the consumer in a way that feels simpler and clearer and therefore equates to confidence and adoption of that, that's where we'll start to see some momentum behind these things. But curious on your thoughts on that, Aaron. Wait, can I go back to my question and just rephrase it? Because <laughs> we probably layered on too much, Mikey. Go. I'm taking okay. notes as you guys are firing away too, of like my, as my we, brain's firing. Go ahead, Mike. We we didn't prep Aaron today either that he was going to be interviewed and, and answering questions for an hour and a half either. Right. So that's okay. Okay. Um, and I guess the reason why I wanted to kind of recap this is because I just had a, another thought around it too. But like, what are the opportunities that you've thought through in your mind? Um, in this space and arena when it comes to buyer's representation. Um, and then I'll, I'll kind of layer this on too. The thing that I think is crazy with this is like, when I think about being an agent, I was an agent for just a minute when, when I sold my business in 2014 and it was the worst like six months of my life. And when I think about how many buyers are going to be putting in offers in whatever way they have to put their offers in to all of these freaking agents, I think the other half of the industry is going to want to quit because they're going to be getting stupid offers and just all kinds of crazy stuff. So I kind of wanted to double compound the, like, what's the opportunity for buyer's representation? Because I think if there's not some kind of like, if we don't solve something around that, this industry could get really messy because I mean, I've, how many people, how many times as an agent, did you hear somebody say, Hey, I want to throw a low ball offer. And the eight, like the buyer's agent is like, listen, you have to do something reasonable. You can't just say stupid shit like that. Like, it's going to get crazy. I know my answer. I want to know Aaron's. Let's see if I can wrap up all of these into a couple quick answers. She said, like, who owns MLS? How does the thing work? We had questions of, like, what is actually needed for a transaction and what is the opportunity as a few different things. It's funny. There's going to be parts that are needed no matter what in transactions. I bought a boat from Mike. Right. But we also realized that we weren't smart enough to do all the paperwork ourselves. We could have. And I think we probably paid this escrow company like 500 bucks to make sure we did it right. Right. To like do all the little things. So there's part of like getting a service or getting title insurance and things like that that will always be an expense. But technology will drive the price down. So right now people pay 2% for title policies. But the better that technology and blockchain is going to get with title reports, title even title policies are going to go from 2% to 1% to half a percent. And people are trying to change as it's regulated. So who owns MLS? In order to do business as a paid real estate agent, you just have to go get your real estate license. That's the legal requirement. In every state, it's different. It's usually a combination of coursework and testing to get your real estate license. So if you want to be a real estate agent in Texas, you go through the course, you take your license. Now you can transact and now you can get paid a commission. But what the local MLS will tell you is you can't get paid a buyer's agent commission or know what the buyer's agent commission is or even get the instructions to send an offer unless you've also paid to be part of the local MLS, which is owned by the local association of realtors. So in Northern California, you can be a part of MLS and you could pretty much get access to all of California. 
because all the MLSs work together. You only have to sign up for one of them and you could go anywhere. Well, in central Texas, there is a, an MLS in, in city of Austin, you know, 40 miles north of here, there's like a, a, an MLS for just like Bell County, which is a small little town, which is within driving distance. If you go just south in the in like Guadalupe County, there's like three MLSs that cover over one county. So in theory, to be a good agent, you'd have to act, actually have to sign up for three different MLSs of like 100 to $200 a month just to represent your buyers or sellers properly within this county. And sometimes people are like, oh, it's listed on this MLS and not that MLS. So Texas is even worse when it comes to multiple people that have their hands in owning MLS. So you don't have mm. to legally be part of MLS to do transactions, but that's part of why these lawsuits held up to actually fairly compete. You do have to be part of that when it should just be all you have to do is do the law. All right. LoopNet, Crexy, those, those are pay to play, right? We want to get on there. We want to get our listing on there. We pay for the service. We want to get access as a buyer. We pay for the service. That's where MLS will lead right? Like, why not? Why can't it be the same thing? People yeah. pay, like you get access to Zillow for free, but if you want to know like how much they pay and what their interest rate is, you can sign up for my software or other software, or the future software. They go, how much they owe, what's their interest rate, things like that. Big opportunity comes with like technology, like absolutely. Like the technology is going to be the big opportunity and then training courses. Cause buyers are going to say, how do I make an offer? How's this work? And like right now there's free stuff on YouTube. But again, it's pay to play everywhere else. And if somebody really wants to buy a house and there's a $100 course out there on how to do it. When I list my properties, um, and I think, and I'll be wrapping it up with this. When I list my properties for sale in Texas, I use a flat rate listing company that I think is on the cutting edge of technology on how they're doing it. And I won't say the name yet because I'm still hoping to buy or merge with the company someday. But I pay 500 bucks to list my property. And it asks me these questions in bullet points where if I had never sold a house before, it's like this, it's a really amazing process. And then they go get pictures taken and then they FedEx an MLS box to the house and then it gets popped in. So for 500 bucks, I've got an MLS box where realtors can come show the property and with professional pictures. And then essentially skip the middleman. Whenever there's an offer, it just gets forwarded over to me. So I get to negotiate directly with the buyers. All my agent does in that point is just, they're just the funnel and they push it back and forth. It's an amazing process, but my buyers right now would still have to get an agent that has MLS access to come knock on the door or to, to go show it. Well, when we do our rentals, we use this box called Rently, where Rently is on all of our rentals. Cause when I, mean, I started renting houses in Texas, when I lived in California, I had no Texas employees. These Rently lock boxes let people self show our properties. It does a quick little background check on them puts their credit card info in. They've got to take a picture in front of the house holding their ID and it says, cool, here's a one-time use code for you to get into this house. So what is the future eventually going to be in sales? It's going to be using a flat rate listing company similar to the one that I'm using that has a Rently lockbox on there. The technology lets any buyer go show the house as long as they pay the fee, you know, pass the background, do all that stuff where they don't need to pay uh, buyer's agents commissions to get access to them anymore. And what the technology can do is actually work people, like the future of what technology, what should be built then is for somebody, one, like an offer writing system template where it's like, hey, if you're going to write an offer on our property, here's the sheet you go to. And it actually says, how much do you want to offer? And it would do the things like, what are you qualified for? How much can you afford? These are the things to consider. 
do you want to get a home inspection? A little video pops up. This is why you would get a home inspection. This is how much it's going to cost. Here's nine different versions of that, like technology. And, and really the upsells are like, here's two home inspectors in your neighborhood that are paying for this spot. So technology for sellers to actually have a template to be able to submit all the offers and teach people along the way on how to, that's going to be a giant opportunity for somebody out there. Maybe I'll beat you to it, but I hope one of you guys beat, beat me to it on this, on the technology submittal part. And then the access part with unlocking more of these rently lock boxes and other things to really start to skip the middleman and have essentially free education along the way, but can be monetized through services that people still do need because they will still need title. They will still need escrow. They will still need home inspectors. They'll still need plumbers and contractors to actually do the stuff. So a lot of that software could even be free for buyers knowing that those other contractors are paying for their access. So that will be a trillion dollar idea for one of our listeners out there. So I think overall technology is what's going to help it. Uh, it's going to help push it down to where people can get directly with the buyers and sellers and teach people. And there will still be some people that don't trust technology. And that's where somebody like where Mike and I paid an escrow company to help me buy his boat when we really didn't need it. Right. He could have signed that. We could have gone through it. We're like, let's get somebody. There'll still be some people like, well, I'd still rather pay somebody to walk me through the process. But by the way, as a side note, like four weeks after I sold him the boat, that escrow company was like, where's the damn registration? He can't title the boat. So it's important. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I, I think we've, we've talked about this on the podcast too. And, and I'd wonder how much there was a couple months ago where I think politicians or the candidates were talking about because BlackRock was buying all these properties up and we're, we're, you guys are all speaking on behalf of investors. And these practices really affect, they probably are taken advantage of most by investors. And the people that get hurt the most are the lovely couple in Dallas who's, you know, upgrading their house from 2000 to 3000 because they just got another kid and they want to move closer to the school, but they're competing with Mooch, who is an investor who's more savvy, has relationships with the broker, knows how to negotiate to increase, you know, like add value and increase a deal. And so I, I wonder how much of these systematic changes are influenced by big, large bodies of people that are like, Hey dude, you know, the average family who wants to buy a home, who actually wants to live in that home is being affected by these practices. And the brokers are making a ton of money. The investors are making a ton of money, but it's unaffordable now for a, you know, uh, a 30 something year old couple to own a home or a, what do I, you know, you know what I mean? Well, ju just to be clear, if I, if I heard that right, I don't, most investors aren't using this. Yeah. So this is all about, I yeah. don't think what we're this saying. Is is, this is retail real yeah, estate, this is it's retail. Not, a, not investment real estate. No, but I mean, even in retail, I mean, even in, in like single, I mean, I was just looking this up while you guys were talking in like 2019, BlackRock bought, 16, they have 80,000 homes in their portfolio at the end of 2019. And, and when I was talking about this, I think we talked about it on the podcast. I was trying to look it up as we were talking, but they are the single largest owner of single family residences in the United States. Blackstone, not Blackrock. Blackstone. Yeah. They're, they are actually two different companies. So um, how do you compete, right? If I'm just trying to buy a house where I want to go live or I need to sell my house to upgrade or whatever, how do I compete with that as in the single family residential market I'm talking about? Not, but I, I'm saying that we're speaking on behalf of investors, not on behalf of users. I, I would say really quick on behalf of users, I think most of them 
find their house on Zillow or Redfin and they send it to an agent and say, please help me go see this house. Hmm. If there was a self-showing button, they would take it instead, especially if they were going to buy the house for $3,000 less, or especially if the seller was then just going to give them a 3% credit to go toward their down payment. And so I think that that's how this actually helps consumers and how it's actually going to hold up. You know, although my buyer agent commissions out there are heartbroken. This one is for the consumers. How do you compete with big investors? That's a whole different question, a whole different ball game. It's Mm. uh, it's not something that we get to get to solve here. Economics solves that and supply and demand and low interest rates is what solved it before. And I think goes into what we talked about last week of renter nation. Like why someone, there's very little reason someone should go buy a house right now. Yeah. Very little, very little bonus to go buy a house to live in. Like I agree. I'm going to rent my next one. Yeah. I think maybe Ash where the confusion maybe came in is when we're talking about investing, all we were saying was that on the investing side, we've never really used a buyer's agent for years. So this is just kind of your sophisticated buyer. Yeah. Well, and that's That's really where the technology will come in. You're right. There will be some growing pains of it. That's why there will be a need for technology or a need for somebody to teach a class or maybe somebody is paying. One of the options on my flat rate listing company is when the contract comes in, I can pay an extra $200 for them to review the contract and give me recommendations if I'm not comfortable reading a contract myself. No, so I there think could that was be smart. Some things like that. Yeah. I well, think that was smart. Mike, you said that's that. That's yeah. where I think a couple unicorns are going to come out of this in the real estate space because my answer to your question earlier, Ash, was AI, data, and software. And yeah, it has to be. Those three things are are doing a very good job at consolidating and deflating a lot of industries. And that's only going to continue to accelerate and become more rapid and bring more value to the marketplace and higher standards to the marketplace as well. So I can totally see there being AI agents and processes that are templated. And because of how much data we already have in the industry through transactional volume, understanding how systematically you start here and you finish here. There's going to be so many different scenarios that data is collected on and AI can quantum process at a rapid speed with very little error in that. And then maybe there's going to be some subsets of experts that can step in and give you those human elements and touch. But I think it's going to really raise the bar and consolidate and eliminate a lot of error that happens in the industry that is going to create some massive value. And anybody that's on the AI software and data side of that opportunity, I think, is going to get rewarded very handsomely. In three years, when I sell my new company for a trillion dollars, it's going to be really fun to listen back on this one. We came there up. we go, baby. Done. <clears throat> yeah, no, I think, Mike, you said it too. Smart idea, man. Like, just charge a fixed fee on the buyer side. I'll help you. I'll coach through it. I'll make sure the contracts are clean. Fixed fee. Low entry like point. Yeah, ex- I was going to say legal zoom of real estate. Yeah. And yeah. then that'll, well, that'll get turned into technology. Right now, maybe I charge you $3,000 because the technology doesn't exist. But then sooner or later, I'm a, the technology will exist. I'll scale and it'll have to be 500 Yeah. And, and Ash, kind of back to your point. I mean, how many times, you know, obviously when we sit around as investors, like I don't mind paying a commission. Like I want to I want to make a transaction as easy as possible on my side. I don't mind paying legal fees. I don't mind paying commissions. But how many times have you talked to everyday, you know, Rose and Jane and John and Jim or whatever that 
are like, why do I need a realtor? Like, how could I do this without a realtor? Like, yeah. that's the sentiment out on the street. They just don't, nobody's comfortable or confident to do it because it's, it's like this behemoth. It, it's an Gosh. industry that, yeah, well, and it's, I mean, there's barriers to entry and, and this is going to get interesting because I think everybody feels that they don't want, I mean, Karen, and I have our house listed right now. And I said, I said the other day to her, I'm like, she's like, well, should we pull our house? Cause it's been listed for a while and we're not in a hurry to sell it. But I'm like, no, he knows what he's doing. We'll just, you know, follow his lead. And she's like, does he? And I'm like, well, yeah, he came highly recommended. And it like really started, I was just like, maybe this guy doesn't freaking know what he's doing. I don't know. Maybe it's just a great marketing brochure. Like Ken McElroy said, you know, the better the brochure, the worse the deal. Maybe it's the same thing <laughs> in the real estate industry. And I think, I think that's sometimes the sentiment out there. And this is, this is going to get interesting because um, I think a lot of people feel this, but I think no matter what, if I was going to list my house, I'm more prone to use an agent to list my house than I would be to, you know, hire an agent to rep represent me on the buying side. So I don't know, just my two cents. Well, there's a lot, and we've said this also, man, there's a lot of people that are incentivized for this not to happen. I mean, I'm surprised that title companies haven't led this effort with blockchain and AI and, and, helping the documentation process go more smoothly integrating with these data software companies like Crexy or like, you know, all the residential companies are like MLS and trying to make it easier for people just to transact and get a deal done, get a house bought and blah, blah, blah. People, but people brokers just are in the way, insurance companies in the way, title companies in the way, banks are in the way. Everybody's got a cut that they got to make the cities fees, blah, 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 blah. Think about Major that. So, in a house, in a yeah. house transaction, five percent commissions, two percent to title companies, which get to keep. Like I own a title company, we get to keep like eighty percent of the title insurance policy for like brokering it. Mortgage brokers at a couple percent. Like for every hundred thousand dollar house, you've got like fifteen thousand dollars worth of people that make money on it. There's like a lot of juice that can be squeezed, but but people. No one's going to lead it, right? Why would a title company say, let's make it cheaper? They're going to do that yeah. when they have to. Yeah. No one was going to say, I'll give up my buyer agent commission, but then mm -hmm. something forces it. Now they're going to. You know, hmm. Ash, when you say that about the title companies, I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a title company and got a, a packet from them on, I forget what they even call it, but like to do, you know, an off market deal. And they just, it's like a title packet for, private transaction. I mean, it exists. The title companies just don't, they don't share it. Like nobody wants to talk about it, but if you walk into any title company, mm. probably including Airbnb, Finder policy, there you go. Like, and I, you know, you can get a packet that like the seller fills it out, the buyer fills it out and they do, they'll do escrow for you without an agent. It's just like, nobody talks about it. Just like the boat. Just like, right? the, like boat. the, you can have an escrow company that'll do your stuff without doing title. So for those that are listening right now, my, yes. my final thought on this is in times of disruption there and chaos in industries, in economics, there is so much one individual and personal opportunity for growth and two wealth opportunity and financial gain growth. And so for anybody that is looking at this, you know, as a very bad thing, um, I think it's a very scarcity-based mindset, right? And to flip that on its head to go, where's the opportunity? How can I learn? How can I grow? How can I bring more value to my customer, to my business, to my industry? 
those are the people thinking through it with an abundance mindset that are going to absolutely tenfold crush their business goals, their wealth goals. And I think there is a lot of stuff happening right now in a lot of different industries and in different nooks and crannies of the economy and different nooks and cranny of the world that give massive opportunity for growth right now. And if you approach it with that mindset, I think you're going to look back, you know, 50, 50 is always easier, uh, clearer in hindsight, um, you know, looking back. But I, I think those people that approach it with that mindset and just keep taking massive action, keep listening to the King's table, right? Participating in the right conversations, being around the right people and taking massive action are going to come out uh, very happy and healthy at the end of all of this. Let me share over the last three weeks, I have been cold calling businesses, commercial real estate opportunities. I'm skimming through all these websites we mentioned today. And, and we've said this before, you know, the model of really growing success or growing wealth is you got to have businesses that generate you a lot of cash and you got to invest in real estate and that long-term path will work. Right? So I'm looking at, I'm like just trying to turn over rocks. What's going on? What are people saying? Who's in distress? What's really happening? Right? On the business side, man, so many people bought companies. And I'm talking about like small little service companies, um, like education offices or like car we said carpet cleaning companies, uh, pool routes, like little, little mom and pop types of businesses. So many of those businesses transacted during the COVID opportunity where people got in. Now they don't have the resources to manage it and they're just selling it for pennies on the dollar. The problem is you got to allocate resources to get that business, and, but you can generate great cash. You just got to spend a lot of time. On the real estate side, I think that there is still so much bleeding to happen. I've been developing more of a sort of a runway, more of the criteria, what deals make sense, what deals don't, what's sort of in the middle of the fairway. And as I talk to people, people are trying to get out of projects there's very little to no offers on these commercial opportunities. I'm, I'm right now. I'm just in the last three weeks. I'm looking at office, retail, commercial, uh, medical. So I'm just calling and seeing, and and a few different markets around the United States, right? Not because I think those markets are like specifically better, just a little bit more familiarity for me. But um, yeah, very little offers. People are dropping prices 10, 15, 20 percent. Still no offers. So I think there's there's still time to keep looking, building relationships, buying through the bottom, I will say, because I think you're you're looking at deals that are less than 50% replacement cost on the real estate side. On the cash flow generating side, you're going to get better returns on your capital because you're going to have to invest your time and labor. Just keep listening to the podcast. Keep trying to figure out where your play is. There is just going to be so much opportunity in this game. So I'm doing the work right now, man. I'm on the phone. That a boy. Yeah, man. Mike, you have final thoughts and I'll try to close this out real quick. I just want to, you know, reiterate what Maddie said at the beginning of the podcast. And then he kind of wrapped it at the end too. I just think we're in this period of time where, you know, this is all you've seen the last few days. And I was really excited to get on this call and, and talk through it. Cause I have like the tactical issues. I mean, everybody's freaking out. Like, you know, the sky's falling. This is the end of the world for, you know, real estate. And then like Maddie said earlier, you know, you see a good friend of ours, Dan Lesniak, that's like move to EXP. And there's, you know, it's just, there's just so much noise out there. And I think at the end of the day that, you know, it doesn't matter what industry, as Maddie said, it doesn't matter what's going on. I mean, as she's just talked about it in the real estate sector, I think just keeping our head clear and in the game when things are challenging, 
Maddie said at the beginning, you know, the way we look at this stuff, the attitude that we have, um, you know, a positive attitude isn't necessarily going to change whether the office, you know, market in New York is going to implode or not. But the reality is neither is a negative attitude. And so for, for me, it's just, I've been eliminating from my life because what I find is in times of good, you know, there's all these things that we can do. And Aaron, you and I had this conversation a while back, like, um, you know, when things are good, we kind of get distracted from our business. Things are coasting. We have more employees than we probably should. And everything's easy. And we just start, well, we're entrepreneurs. So we get bored and we start building things that we probably should have never started building to begin with. So yeah. for me, I've eliminated a lot recently. This goes back to a conversation we had four or five weeks back. I've had some key employees quit on me in the last, like one of my main employees quit last week and ghosted me. Like she's not even communicating with me right now and no, nothing happened. Like I've, I'm thinking about calling the police and doing a wellness check because like yeah, nothing happened. And so it's like, it, it's crazy what's going on out there. There's so much negativity. There's so much pressure. The fact that, you know, we've got em employees doing this kind of stuff, they're under intense emotional pressure and it's time for us to keep our head in the game, stay focused, rally the troops because whether we're communicating it or not, verbally they can see it in us you know how we're taking care of ourselves this goes back to uh this is a conversation for another day but even you know the comment around health and taking care of ourselves mentally physically all of that and eliminating as much noise as we can off of our plate i think it's super important right now because um in order to remain positive and get the things done that we need to get done we have to eliminate the things that just don't matter amen well said brother yeah. The, I'll, I'll try to bring us home and, and, and kind of close us out. This has been, this has been awesome. You know, quick reminder to you listeners out there, like we think we're pretty brilliant, but tell us if we aren't, or tell us if we are. <laughs> and also remember like, who's ever, I think you're probably listening to this on Mike's podcast today, you know, as we've done this little bit of a round Robin, this is the King's table and the King's table is going to have its own spot. But if you really want to learn about the world and get to learn about four different ways to do it. You need to go check out all of our individual podcasts, right? So the, we've got, um, the rich, the rich equation. Uh, we've got millionaire Mindcast. Mike, what's your podcast? Investing for freedom, investing for freedom. And we've got my real estate rock stars one, and I'm launching a couple, I'm launching another one, but the, the reality is, is, uh, guys, um, you know, listeners go find us in our different spots too. Because we, you know, we, we love to talk about stuff and teach about this stuff all day. And the King's Table doesn't make money. We are passionate about the stuff um, that we are talking about. My mic drop was going to be the same thing. You know, Maddie opened us up with, we're in the last two months of the year. Let's get some shit done. Let's get and some shit done. This is the difference between the winners and the losers. And when the going get tough, the tough get going. And so we could have stopped the podcast six minutes in. And said, yep, that's what you needed to hear today. And then we got to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff too. You know, I'm presenting at Cody Sanchez's um, deal today. Like for the next three days, she's, she's got a bunch of people in Austin about business buying a lot of the stuff uh, that Ash was talking about, you know. And my opening slide is we are in crisis and never waste a crisis, mm -hmm. right? So the, that'll be something that we talk about later. Maybe I'll get into some more details of what I mean about that. But this is when miracles happen too, right? The, the, the crazy opportunities, the things that are built, it happens in this time. 
and just if you're still listening to us on the podcast, say you're in the right place. Uh, keep driving, keep talking. We want to hear from you. We want to hear what you guys think out there. We want to hear the topics that you guys want to hear from. This was a fantastic call today, guys. Thanks for giving me so much of the mic today to talk about something that I'm passionate about. I think the you know the real estate lawsuit stuff is really cool. So listeners, thanks for bearing with us as we went all in on one topic. But hopefully you heard what these guys said here at the end and at the very beginning. When the going get tough, the tough get going. Finish your year strong. Uh, that's it from the King's Table today. Thanks for listening. Peace. Cheers, guys. If you've found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.